Welcome to Life of Christ Series 4, Term 2. We are up to Lesson 12. I said to you before um, in the previous session that everything that the Pharisees were doing was not God's will. And uh, John MacArthur points out, except for the prescribed fasts on the Day of Atonement, all of the fasts were supposed to be voluntary. For specific reasons such as penitence and earnest prayer. The fact that these Pharisees raised this question shows that they thought of fasting as a public exercise to display one's own spirituality. Yet the Old Testament also rebuked hypocritical fasting. Isn't it interesting that the very people that profess to know God's word, profess to be the keepers of God's word, were doing the wrong things. It's incredible, really. When the Old Testament rebuked hypocritical fasting, with Isaiah 53 and verse 3, best describing why it was wrong, by saying, we have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have done much penance, and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why. It's because you are living for yourselves, even while you are fasting. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Amen? Okay. (laughs) So even though Jesus doesn't specifically teach on the issue of fasting here, when he finally does in the Sermon on the Mount, he will especially warn his disciples never to publicize it. That's brought out in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 16, reading through to verse 18. It says, moreover, when you fast... Now, we will actually, because we are doing the life of Jesus, I know we did the Sermon on the Mount separately, but when we, because we are doing the life of Jesus... And in the way that it fits, and also because I have included Luke's account uh, in the sermon, which I didn't do uh, when I just did the Sermon on the Mount, because I only did it from Matthew's uh, perspective. Uh, we'll actually go through it. We'll try to get through it fairly quickly, but there's some tremendous things in there. Uh, and with Luke adding some things in, uh, we can sort of see some differences um, as well, and why Matthew said what he said, and Luke said what he said. Um, and I think it's important that you guys sort of see those differences um, as, we, as we go through it. So I do want to include it, and it will be included in your notes uh, as we're going through uh, for that reason. All right, so back to Matthew 6.16. It says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Do you see that? He goes, on to say, uh, he goes on to explain how to fast correctly in the next two verses. He says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. He says, in other words, try to make it, do everything possible so people can't pick it out. Amen? And he says, so that you do not appear uh, to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, that's, this is such a key thing. You know, this isn't just about fasting, okay? I mean, just take a minute here. This is about everything that you do for God. It needs to be between you and God. And no matter how excited you are about it, try not to tell people. <laughs> okay? Um, you know, unless you are spirit-led to do so for, for a very specific reason. You know, whatever you do as unto God should be just as unto God. Are you all with me? And you know, you say, yeah, but people misjudge me, people sort of, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what? That's their sin. Just saying. Moving on. Okay. Now what's interesting is that when we look back at Judaism at the time of Christ, we find that the dominant opinion among the Pharisees was that the Messiah, 
And the long-awaited salvation would come when Israel had made itself ready and worthy by the observance of religious law. But despite all their misguided beliefs, the Messiah had already come. Showing that salvation and the soon approaching kingdom was going to be based totally on God's grace and nothing of man, including fasting. That's the reason the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace have you been saved through faith. See, the, the Jews always wanted to do it by works. That's why these things are, being, are brought out. See, a lot of times we just look at it and go, okay. What's the big deal? Because it was a big deal. Remember the Apostle Paul is writing this. His whole life he was taught it was by works that you get in. This was a huge revelation for him. Amen? And that's why he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, like fasting, and telling everybody about it. Okay? He says, lest anyone should boast. You get this now. Because Jesus said they stand there and they tell everybody what they're doing. They're boasting. And remember again, back to you know, Isaiah, it says, We have fasted before you. Why aren't you impressed? <laughs> okay? See, again, don't ever do it to try and impress God. You're, if you're fasting, because you've got a problem. And you really need God to talk to you. Or you need some circumstances to change. Alright? So whatever it takes. Now, returning to the question at hand, which was, Why do the uh, disciples of John... And of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. William Hendrickson says that there was no justification for this question. Had these men been better students of scripture, they would have known first that as has been indicated, the only fast that could by any stretch of the imagination be derived from the law of God was the one on the day of atonement. And second, that according to the teaching of Isaiah 58 and verse 6, and Zechariah 7, verses 1 to 10, it was not a literal fast, but love, both vertical love for God and horizontal love for your neighbor, which God demanded. That's where, this is what God wanted. See, while they are focusing on doing things, outward things, things that can be put on display, things that they could be patted on the back for, God is saying, I'm looking on your heart. I'm looking at the love you have for your neighbor. I'm looking at, you know, how do you treat people? You see the difference? Alright? And He's saying, I'm looking for a lifestyle that is a blessing, not a lifestyle that could be, that, you know, is going to be held up and said, look, I'm so proud of it. Aren't you all proud of it too? <laughs> okay? Don't you want to pat me on the back? And he's saying, that really turns God off. And if ever you find yourself at any time, or somebody making you feel bad, based on what they're doing, don't feel bad. Feel sorry. Because in what they've just done, they have taken away all the blessing that they would have received from God. Amen? Because Jesus said, don't let anybody know. It's whatever you do in secret that's going to be blessed. That's going to be rewarded. Amen? Uh, as to the point about making prayers, this had nothing to do with the kind of prayers that the New Testament encouraged. But very specific, the very religious set prayers at fixed hours, which Jesus was against. And why he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. See, now this is an interesting, which tells us that the hypocrites pray too. 
But he says, when you pray, don't pray like them. Can I put it that way? <laughs> All right? He says, for they love to pray these fixed prayers, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street at fixed times that they may be seen by men. Where, you know, I think we looked at some of these things, how they just time it so that they're just in the right corner at the right time. And it's like, oh, look at that. I have to now pray. Hello? Okay. All right. And as to who these hypocrites were, Jesus does identify them in Matthew 23, in verse 14, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For a pretense you make long prayers. See? Okay? That's as clear as it gets. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Isn't that interesting? Because of what they are doing. See, this is a good thing, but not a God thing. Do you get it? Alright? So they're doing a good thing, which everybody goes, Ooh, ah, aren't they amazing? Aren't they spiritual? They are, look at what it says here. You will receive greater condemnation. From who? Not the people. Because the people are ooing and eyeing. It's God. Amen? Like I said, everything you do, you do as unto God. And be led by the Spirit. Now, even though Jesus chooses... To, may, to remain silent on the subject of prayer at this particular time, he does go on to deal with the question of fasting, spe- uh, specifically why his disciples don't fast, by saying in Mark chapter 2 verse 19, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, can you make, now I'm going to, this is a composite of all the verses, okay, so I'm, let me just read it without giving you the references, they're in your book. He says to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom mourn and fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, this is to do with a wedding feast. Okay? Um, and, in, in fact, let me just see. Can I just read through this first? And then I'll comment on it. Okay? There are several things that we need to take note of here. First, it was, in fact, their own master, John the Baptist, that introduced the thought that Jesus was the bridegroom. And then went on to describe himself as the best man. In John chapter 3 and verse 29, where he says, The bride, or body of believers, belongs to the bride, bridegroom, all right, Jesus Christ. The friend who attends the bridegroom, that's the best man, waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, says John the Baptist, and it is now complete. See, again, John made it very clear that Jesus was the person that everybody keeps their eyes on. All right? That he was heralding Jesus' coming. So it's really sad that, the, that his disciples are, you know, attacking Jesus and his disciples. Are, are you all with me? Instead of just becoming a part of that. Anyway, so Jesus describing himself as a bridegroom shouldn't be too foreign to their thinking. Okay? Uh, nor they're uh, they're accepting of it. Now, second, as Leon Morris points out, Jesus does not say, as long as the festivities go on, but as long as the bridegroom is with them. He concentrates on the presence of the bridegroom. In short, while everything is going well, and he is still with them, there is no need to fast. You know where this is going, right? Okay. Further to this, Arkent Hughes actually brings out the fact that in the case of a wedding ceremony, the friends of the bridegroom, this is from Mark 2.19, were exempt from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling, which said all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. Isn't that interesting? 
Okay? So, Jesus is using something that was common to them, that they would understand. And He's saying, listen, you guys need to understand something. There is going to come a time when they're going to be fasting. And they're going to do it for the right reason, because all that's coming. But He said, this is not the time. Which tells us, why does it tell us again? Every fast has a purpose. It must not be ritualistic. <clears throat> All right. John MacArthur writes, Jesus' point was that the ritual practiced by John's disciples and the Pharisees, I don't know, ritual, okay? Uh, and the Pharisees was out of touch with reality. There was no reason for Jesus' followers to mourn and fast while enjoying the unique reality of His presence among them. As long as He is present with them, there is too much joy for fasting, which was connected to seasons and times of sorrow and mourning, all right, this is the fasting, and intense prayer associated with great spiritual need. All right? So, again, your fasting needs to have purpose. When you are in a bad situation, know that fasting is something that you can do. You know, a lot of times people just, you know how they say, I'm just too worried to eat, okay? And, you know, you put food in front of them and say, no thanks. Dude, you're fasting. Make use of it. Whether you realize it or not, you're there. Now, instead of being in grief, why don't you be in prayer? Amen? Yeah, okay. All right. Again, this is where you can follow the flow and the leading of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God will say, P.S., you're not eating. You're fasting. Let's pray. You're halfway there. Let's go the other way. Because you're in a really good position now to pull down some things from heaven and to lay to waste some of the things that the enemy is trying to do in your life. You're in a really good position. Go for it. Amen? Okay. All right. In other words, as Robert H. Mounts puts it, the messianic wedding feast is underway. Now is the season for joy, not mourning. However, as Jesus goes on to point out in the next verse, in Mark chapter 2, verse 20, He says, but the days will come. Here it is, okay? See, Jesus is very balanced, isn't He? Okay? He says, but the days will come. He didn't say might. He didn't say it was a good possibility. <laughs> okay? I want you to see what He's saying. He's, he knows what's coming. Amen? And He says, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Do you understand? They weren't eating. He said, it's time is coming where they, they, you know, food will be the last thing on their mind. Okay? We know. We know. In short, in the words of William Hendrickson, Jesus is saying that his approaching violent death will mean days of mourning for his disciples. Then, at that particular time, on that day, fasting as an expression of sorrow, will be in order and would occur. This quotation actually alludes to what is brought out in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, which says, this is in the New International Version, by oppression and judgment, referring to his imprisonment and mock trial, he was taken away, referring to his violent death. Okay, Isaiah actually prophesied that. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And the way we know that this is referring to Jesus is because of what the rest of verse 8 and verse 9 says from the New Living Translation, and that is, But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins? That he was suffering their punishment? Isn't it incredible? Verse 9, he says, He had done no wrong, and he never deceived anyone 
but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. All right, and it is at this time that Jesus says, and then they will fast in those days, when fasting will have real meaning. However, now, in my presence, they can do nothing but rejoice. Amen? Got all that? Praise God. Okay, so it is important to point out that even this time of fasting and mourning will not be for very long, according to Jesus himself. In John chapter 16 and verse 16, where he says, In just a little while I will be gone, and you won't see me anymore. Then just a a little while after that, you will see me again. So, remember they weren't fasting the rest of their life. Hello, (laughs) okay? There was a very intense period of time. Jesus died. There was a lot of things that when we get to the crucifixion, we'll look at all of that. All right, Um, And it just happened in, in a way that, um, I, I guess they were all questioning a lot of things. Had they followed the wrong person? How could this happen? Why did this happen? All the questions everybody asks. All right, And uh, so much of the time, even when he said, he had said to them very plainly, he said, I must go, I must go and die. He had told them over and over again, but you know, they just didn't want to, they didn't, just didn't want to know about it. But after all of that, he comes back. Hallelujah. You know, this is, this is really good news. So, whatever fasting they did was over that period of time. We all know it as Easter. The thing was that there was a time of fasting. It wasn't forever. And then there was a time of joy again. Amen. And whatever fast they did after that would have been voluntary. Rather than kind of almost a forced thing because of what had happened. Do you understand? Okay. And we know that he's making reference to the cross. Uh, because of what he goes on to say in verses 20 and 22, and that is truly, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy when you see me again. That's following the resurrection. And no one can rob you of that joy. Hallelujah. Returning to the passage in Mark 2, William Hendrickson in his commentary writes, The important truth that Jesus here reveals and which makes the passage so practical and filled with comfort, especially um, also for today, is that for those who acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior, the proper attitude of heart and mind is not that of sadness, but that of gladness. If it be true that God with us, okay, Emmanuel, spells joy for believers, should not God within us, the situation on and after Pentecost of awaken in every child of God joy unspeakable and full of glory. There is a great joy in knowing that God is not just with us, but He's in us. You know, when, when Jesus came, it was God was with us. Jesus said, I have to die. I have to, I have to do all of these things because you need more than God with you. You need God in you. Hallelujah. Amen. In fact, the very first announcement of the coming Messiah was filled with joy. With Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 saying, Then the angel said to them, that is the shepherds that were living out in the fields, He says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Isn't that interesting? The first thing they said, they didn't say, The judge is coming! Everybody go hide! (laughs) Okay? They said, "We're We're bringing you good news! Praise God, and it was great news, wasn't it? Amen? For all of us. Hallelujah. And not only was the coming of the Messiah an immensely joyous occasion, but Jesus himself was filled with supernatural, never-ending joy. 
and said in John chapter 15 and verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. See, see, Jesus came to bring joy. While the Pharisees and the Sadducees were putting bundles on people's backs that Jesus said that you yourselves don't carry, and you're putting all these weights on people, He said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. And here he's, He actually says, I've spoken these things, that my joy may remain on you, and that your joy may be full. Now I want you to think about that. You know, Jesus came to give us a joy that was full. It wasn't half full. Okay, it, the, the, there's the fullness, and we'll look at this when, when we get to John chapter 15. It, this is an overflowing kind of fullness. This is a kind of woohoo kind of fullness. Okay, this is that kind of joy that you need in the worst of times. See, this is why it's so good to have the word of God in you, and you know, you need to keep that word close to you. It's not a religious thing, it's just a reminder of what God has said. We'll, and, and will say to you right now if you were standing right before you. Because he will always speak his word. And, but you need, the, you, know, you need that word rightly divided because people can divide it wrongly and give you a whole other interpretation. And instead of being joyful, you, you go into more bondage. Amen. And I, I really need you to see this and understand that Jesus said, I have come to give you joy. Not bondage. Amen. And so, you know, as much as we are corrected, even in our correction... There should be a joy, because the joy should be that we have learned something, we are escaping, getting away from something that is destroying us, and into a place where we can receive more, greater blessing. Okay, not just more, but greater blessings, and, and greater joy, and greater power in our life. Amen? Amen. Okay, moving on. <clears throat> and it is this joy that the, apostle, the apostles operated in, and which the Apostle John, through his writings shares with the entire body of Christ when he says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, these things write to you that your joy may be full. We've looked at that because we're doing the epistles of John at the moment. Therefore, it is because of this joy that came with the Lord's preaching, presence and power that there's no longer any reason for Judaistic legalistic fasting. So please, you know, I'm just going to say this, you don't get caught in that. Don't get caught in that. Now, what I do want you to do is change your thinking about it. Whatever experiences you've had in the past, I'm, I'm doing so much on this because I don't know where you guys are coming from and you know, what bad experiences you might have had with this. I want you to know that you know, fasting isn't something that's a bad thing, it's a good thing. When you do it by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Not because you think you have to. If you ever think you have to, don't. Okay, but if you feel led to, go for it. Don't resist the leading. Because God is about to do something extraordinary now. And He's saying, I need your complete attention. Okay, and if He says, I need your complete attention, He needs your complete attention. <laughs> and which means He's about to take you somewhere that's extraordinary. And you just want to stay there, man. You don't want to miss a moment. Amen? That has happened on so many different ways. In so many, you know, I can give you story after story after story. The most recent one being you know, with, with one of the families in our church uh, that all decided suddenly they needed to pray the night before. And there was this huge accident. 
and they were all saved. And today they have a better car than they had before. The same kind of car, but the model up from it and drives a lot better and has a lot more gadgets in it, <laughs> apparently. I mean, God just restored everything. But isn't it interesting? They didn't even tell each other that they were praying. They all just prayed. Separately. They were all led to pray. And you know, some of them prayed all night and so on and so forth. Without telling the other one. And there's seven in that family. Isn't that incredible? Amen? And had they not been led by the Spirit and known to be led by the Spirit, we'd have had one of those things where there would have been a tragedy because only a couple of weeks before this, this has happened to another family not in our church. What you know can save your life. Can I just say that? And they lost one of their kids. I just want you to know, there are times when God says, I need your complete attention, give it to Him. <laughs> okay? You all don't know what's around the corner, literally. And uh, it's not a ritualistic thing when you, when you feel that, go for it, because God is about to save you and do something extraordinary, whether it's you know, a life being spared, or whether some huge blessing is coming your way. Amen? Amen. Okay. Can I, I'll do one more quote, and we'll pick it up at this point. William Hendrickson writes, The main lesson conveyed is that the new order of things, which Jesus, by His coming, has ushered in, bringing healing to the sick, liberation to the demon-possessed, freedom from care to the care-ridden, cleansing to the lepers, food to the hungry, restoration to the handicapped, and above all, salvation to those lost in sin, does not fit into the old mold of man-ordained fasting. Alright, so we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll come back and pick it up uh, on page 17. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me pray.